Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, a classic pro wrestling podcast where we talk about wrestling usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Today, we are going to be talking about the WWF in the fall of 1983. This is the last time we're going to do an episode like this. The last time we're going to do a seasonal recap of the World Wrestling Federation. More on that later. But before I get rolling, I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter or X, whatever it is now. Just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo in his avatar. I have a bunch of people to thank because they contributed to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. It is ad-free, it is free to listen to, and your donations keep us rolling. Uh, Mark Rock and Roland, thank you again. Uh, Joseph Rome, wow, thank you for being so generous. David Ferguson, Daniel Huffner, Sung Kim, a.k.a. S.K. Lee, uh, John Ware, my man who likes the Pittsburgh Panthers, and Rob Reigns all contributed. Guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you would like to contribute to the Stick to Wrestling podcast, uh, just go to PayPal and donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. I'll tell you what, here's a fun prank. Give me $13.95, that exact amount. And when you leave a note, just say, here's a nickel per podcast for you, schmuck. And if you <laughs> say that, I will I will thank you in two weeks. And with that, I want to bring on Steve Generelli. Steve, can you tell us about the Facebook group? Absolutely. We have such a great group. Uh, we have uh, contributing this week, uh, Jamie Hama, who is... Uh, Hama time. Hama time. He's... he's Thinking that the York Foundation could have been a whole lot bigger than it was, uh, we have the, the SK Lee who we just mentioned. He uh, put out the uh, great poll of who was the best on the mic, and it came down between Roddy Piper and Bobby Heenan, and we're kind of still uh, tabulating the final numbers on that. And we also had, unfortunately, again, we had Tim Wakefield last week. Ben Kling mentioned the, the death of Russ Francis, another tragic uh, moment in sports. Steve, how did Rob, R- Russ Francis not become a big name in professional wrestling? He he wrestled, right? He was a big star in the NFL, good-looking guy, and I don't know how he never kicked the door in, in this business and made a lot of money. I, I mean, if I had to give an answer on that, I mean, uh, he definitely had the, a great look about him. Uh, I think in the NFL, he was like, again, one of those guys, kind of like a Mike Allstott, who looked like bigger than life and huge. But, you know, when you saw Russ Francis getting into the ring at the WrestleMania two Battle Royal, he kind of looked dwarfed compared to a lot of the wrestlers, you know, the Dan Spiveys and, uh, uh, you know, the bigger guys who were in there, like even uh, King Tonga. I mean, there were big, big guys in there, and he didn't look like a standout. But on the NFL field, he was truly a standout. 
Yeah, maybe I'm thinking a little bit before my time because in by the time Francis's career ended, the wrestling business had changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. But I think if he had been born maybe even five years earlier, he could have been the next Wahoo McDaniel slash Ernie Ladd. Oh, yeah. I remember getting those issues of ring wrestling in the late 70s, the AWA results in the back, and him and Billy Francis, his brother, were teaming up a lot in the AWA. Uh, I'm sure he was doing it before football or in between football season and uh you know he, he was a great athlete and uh you know died tragically young uh, but uh there's a lot to talk about this week with 1983 <laughs> you're right and you know what i want to get back to this really quickly uh if you donate 13 dollars 95 cents this week to the stick to wrestling podcast i promise i will spend every penny of it on tj's deli and subs here in nashua steve believe it or not i'm from new york i know what good pizza is nashua has a lot of good pizza and TJ's rolls. Oh, man, I got to get a plane ticket to get up to Nashville, New Hampshire now. <laughs> when we first moved up here, it was disgusting. It was like the good pizza up here was Papa Gino's and Pizza Hut, <laughs> and it's changed. <laughs> so it, it really, Manchester has sucky pizza. Manchester, New Hampshire sucks. Lowell sucks. But Nashville, for whatever reason, has like five or six good pizza spots. So anyway, on to the WWF. Fall 1983, this is the last time we're going to take a seasonal look at the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, and you know what? We have a ton of audio. I was, like, planning on coming on here saying, you know, apologizing for not having a lot of audio. But 1984, I actually have a, a lot more. But Fall 83, I had close to an hour worth of footage. And let's kick off with the Magnificent Morocco on Buddy Rogers' Corner. Oh, for review purposes only. My guest this week, the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, Don Morocco, and his manager, Lou Albano. Before I get on to an interview here with these gentlemen, I would like to refer to the Victory Magazine, sanctioned by the World Wrestling Federation. And inside is a sort of a a thing that I just can't get over in my mind. It says, respect and ridicule and the gentleman referring to this is none other than Don Morocco Don I would like to know one thing give me an idea of what you have in your mind in regards to this you know Buddy Rogers it's really something I make a fool of your man Jimmy Snooker you send Rocky Johnson after me. Tony Atlas comes all the way from the West Coast, shining his muscles. Ivan Pusky's pumping up. Tito Santana has bought a new donkey and he's dragging it around the street. Isn't that something? And people still have the nerve to refer to me. What is this? You tell me I'm going to get time to speak and they're wrapping me up now. You want me to talk on your corner. You invite me here and they're giving me the rap to get in the ring now. What kind of what? You keep putting the mic over. You took this whole interview. All you want to do is try and make a fool out of me in front of all the millions. Ladies and gentlemen, I've had enough. We'll go back to ringside. You know what you can do with your corner. You can take it and 
Talk about Morocco trying to save a segment. I mean, if I'm Morocco, I'm like, buddy, what are you asking me? Is there a question in all of that? Yeah, he kept saying there's a thing in a magazine. Maybe it's an article. <laughs> they're, they're, they were pushing the WWF Victory magazine hard at this point. By the way, I say for review purposes, I really hope to bring that segment back on this specific show. We're recording like four days before the show comes out, so hopefully I can get someone to volunteer for that, get the show out to them, and speak with them and get that all taken care of. But I really like that segment. I want to bring it back. Um, Steve, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the WWF. We have the show from the Boston Garden which uh, we're recording on October 9th. This took place on October 8th, 1983. It was the wildest Boston Garden show I had ever been part of, had ever ever been in the audience for. Uh, I mentioned it on the Facebook group, which if if you haven't joined, you need to join so you can see stuff like this. Um, I'll, I'll stay away from the preliminary matches. And I've talked about this show on the on the podcast before but now is the perfect time for it uh it had the mass superstar against bob backland and they did an absolutely first of all bob backland is going after mass superstar for injuring eddie gilbert we'll have more on that either this week or next week uh but mass superstar injured eddie gilbert's neck right after he comes back from a horrible neck injury suffered in a legit car accident. And Bob Backlund, after the match, Mass Superstar does the corkscrew neckbreaker to Bob Backlund outside the ring and somehow lands right on top of Arnold Skoland. And both Bob Backlund and Arnold Skoland get stretchered out, and the place was going nuts. Well, <laughs> it's, it, let me ask you this, John. I mean, as far as uh, that night, can you remember like where you were sitting? Were you like elevated or were you at ringside or where were you sitting? I was elevated. I was definitely uh, not in the back of the balcony, but in the front of the balcony, like right in front of the ring. So they were good seats, even though they were kind of elevated, mm-hmm. um, which I which I like. You never want to sit ringside. <laughs> never want to sit ringside for wrestling because you're going to have people throwing stuff at the ring and hitting you, number one. <laughs> and in, unless you're in the very front row, you're going to have people standing up. You're not going to be able to see anything. So I learned my lesson early. Steve, one thing I noticed, like I have the answer to it now, but when I was a kid, when I was you know 18 in Boston watching, this i'm like man people are actually cheering bob backland getting stretchered out <laughs> and they must hate backland right but now i understand that you know that may have been a little bit part of it but it was more like oh my god we got to see something this month right yeah and well you had been going to the shows uh you know way back two and a half years you know, two and a half years okay and, and you never really had seen anything like this depraved this wild and crazy i guess no, I don't even know what would come in, in third place after the top two things I saw on this night. You know, I saw a really good Bob Backlund versus Bob Orton Jr. match, but that's all it was. Like, you know, you didn't see angles. You know, you saw the end of something. Like, we saw the beginning of Tony Atlas versus Jesse Ventura mm-hmm. on TV, mm-hmm. and then we saw the end when they had a, a rematch in the cage in Boston, mm-hmm. but, like, nothing went off the the rails like this. Right, especially uh, Skolan getting in, too. I mean, that was really uh, unheard of. 
It was. Like I said, the fans were going nuts. They were cheering. And I've come to realize that, you know, it was like, wow, we, we saw something. Wait till I get home. And my friends tomorrow asked me, hey, what happened at the Boston Garden? Like, wait until they hear this. Then we had Jimmy Snuka against Don Morocco in the cage. Basically the same finish as Madison Square Garden got about eight, eight or nine days later where Morocco gets knocked out of the door and thus wins the match on, on a total fluke. Of course, we've seen this fluke too many times. And then Snooker drags him back in the ring, beats the crap out of him, climbs to the top of the cage and jumps off and hits Morocco. And Morocco doesn't get stretchered out, but he needs to get helped out. Did, did the, do you think the reaction of the Boston crowd was pretty much parallel to what the MSG crowd was like? Parallel is the exact word. I mean, it's it's what everyone had wanted to see forever. As soon as they say, uh, as soon as they announced the cage match uh, rematch, you know, we kind of knew we were going to see Snuka. You know, everyone was looking for Snuka to do that to Morocco. And as far as I know, New York and Boston are the only two cities to have gotten that. And not to be morbid or anything, Steve, but I mean, if you think about it, not a lot of people are going to be left who got to see that live. I mean, it was 40 years ago. If you're an adult, you're either, you know, very old or you're gone. <laughs> and I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the small handful of people left, probably a couple of thousand, who say who can say, hey, I got to see Snooker do that to Morocco live. Me, Mick Foley, and a few others. Well, it's very ingenious booking that they came up with. I know, uh, you know, one thing that people have said over the years is that WWF was too uh, cookie cutter, too black and white. Well, um, they actually did some interesting booking in this series of matches because, you know, if it was if it was as predictable as they w- always say it is, then uh, Snuka would have, you know, won the title, would have beaten Morocco. But instead, we have all these series of interesting uh, gimmick matches, the Fijian strap match, the uh, cage match, and Morocco, surprisingly, the bad guy wins most of these matches. Yeah, I mean, you were we were looking for Snuka to win the Intercontinental Championship. I mean, that's what, I mean, before, you know, before you know what goes on behind the scenes, Snuka winning that title would have been the most logical thing in the world, although... If he wins it, he has to lose it, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, you know, I mean, we talked about Morocco and Snuka starting, I, I think, about six months ago, but it came so out of nowhere. Morocco is doing an interview on Buddy Rogers' corner. Snuka's in the ring getting, getting ready to wrestle, and all of a sudden, these two are going at it, and it was the feud everyone wanted to see. Yeah, they, they gave us something that we had never seen before. Uh, you know, Morocco had verbally trashed Snuka, and there's there's Morocco in civilian clothes uh, standing near the ring, and Snuka's in the ring about to wrestle, and then Snuka just does this uh, plancha leap uh, on top of Morocco, and uh, you know the fans had never seen anything like this before, and uh, you know Snuka had already gained this huge reputation as being uh, kind of the phenom of his day, like kind of like the Undertaker would might be twenty thirty years later, this this really unbeatable guy. And uh, to see him uh, against this guy who was also very, very uh, hard to beat, Morocco, uh, it was just a match uh, made for that time. I don't think anything could really top its interest of 1983. I I think it it, it really was a dream match. As soon as Morocco came back, 
I kind of thought he was, I, I really thought he was going to win the WWF title, and then we're going to see Morocco versus Snuka, you know, going around the horn for that title, and maybe even Snuka coming out with the belt. You know, you compared Snuka to The Undertaker, and I honestly don't think The Undertaker was in Snuka's class. And yes, it was a completely different world in the 90s than it was the pre-Hulk Hogan WWF days. It's a tough comparison, but Snuka, I, I can't emphasize enough how over Jimmy Snuka was in the WWF. Yeah, I, I guess that comparison for me is more of the sense of it, it, Snuka in 83 was maybe head and shoulders above the rest of the roster as far as the most over, the most impressive, uh, maybe the most dominant. And I think maybe, say, like in the early 90s, uh, uh, post-Hogan, uh, you know, pre-Stone Cold uh, Undertaker, uh, you know, he was just this massive, undefeated uh, thing. But you know, it wasn't as believable in that time. You had to suspend disbelief with The Undertaker and his old gimmick. But uh, Snuka was a, incredibly athletic in his day. And uh, Morocco was the perfect foil since they just seemed so, uh, you know, like uh, kind of like the Red Sox and the Yankees. Just a great matchup for each other. It, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like I said, it was a dream match. And you just didn't... It, by, by this time, and this is the very end of this era, okay, we were still kind of pretending, if you squint your eyes a little bit, that this is a real sport. Mm-hmm. And that kind of went away really quickly. And, you know, like I said, this is the, the last one of these we're going to do. I mean, 40 years ago, it all ended. Yeah, it, it did. And in uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about um, really piqued my interest rewatching it over the last uh, couple of weekends and getting preparing for this show. Uh, stuff, like you say, you will never, ever see again in the WWF. Not even in 1984 will you see this again. So we, we have no. a lot to talk about, lots of interesting stuff. One other thing I wanted to mention, we came into the Boston Garden the the month before they announced that, you know, uh, a special match we're having next month. We're going to see SD Jones against, pause, fabulous Freebird (laughs) Michael Hayes. (laughs) Wow. And the place came unglued, Mm -hmm. okay? And it hadn't been mentioned again. And we come to the arena and we're all kind of like, you know, is Michael Hayes really going to be here? And it wasn't even in the program as far as I remember. Like, you know, no Michael Hayes, no explanation, no nothing. But that's another thing. I mean, I think, you know, we we came to the building kind of half hoping that Michael Hayes would be there. And it just goes to show you the world was changing. I mean, world-class championship wrestling was airing in Boston and there was a demand for the Von Erichs, the Freebirds, Birds, Jimmy Garvin, etc. And I think they just kind of put that out there to see what kind of a reaction they would get if they mentioned Michael Hayes' name. And oh yeah, they got a reaction. <laughs> when, when the Freebirds finally did have their very brief run uh, in 1984, uh, did they ever appear in Boston? I don't think so, and I'll explain why. Okay. Oh man, um, on September 8th, 1984, there was a show in Boston, and I actually did not attend the show because I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert. Mm-hmm. On October 9th, 1984, in a little ice arena in a crappy part of Manchester, New Hampshire, I got to see A. Hulk Hogan versus Jesse the Body Ventura, so two 
names that would be, you know, household names in the near future, again, in this crappy little ice <laughs> arena, and the Freebirds were there. So I'm going to assume that the Freebirds, I don't remember, but they must have been in Boston the, the night before. But yeah, I got to see them live once in Manchester. Any uh, any quick thoughts on what you saw that night? Was it, was it, worth, your, was it worth your wait? Um, it was definitely worth the trip, even though the trip's only a half an hour. Um, I don't remember much about the show. I remember it was Gordy and Hayes. Uh, excuse me, it was Gordy and Roberts wrestling, and Hayes was outside the ring, and the fans were a little bit disappointed. I remember. I don't remember much else about it. I mean, it was kind of a kind of a weird twenty-four hours Springsteen one night in Hartford, and wrestling the next night in in Manchester. You were spent, obviously. I was spent. I mean, we didn't get home from Hartford until like six in the morning. That's that's its own really long story. And then I've got to get up to go watch pro wrestling in Manchester. It was kind of nuts. So with that, I'll tell you what. We've got more audio. Uh, let's hear from once they can't get enough of that magnificent Morocco and Buddy Rogers Corner. Let's hear from that. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My guest this week is the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion. Magnificent Morocco and his infamous manager, Lou Albano. It seems like the last time they were on my program that they felt they were put out or closed out, but I'm going to give them a chance to really express themselves. So I'd like to get together with you, Don. It doesn't seem like the fact is, Buddy Rogers, as usual, you tried to bring me out here to embarrass me in front of my millions and millions of fans all over America and the world. The fact is, I'm not here to talk about challengers. I'm not here to talk. A man you've ignored often. I want, this is the captain's moment to bask in the sun. Captain, will you please have the seat? And captain has very something, something very important to say to you, Roger. Thank you very much, magnificent Morocco and buddy Rogers. You sleazy, slimy individual. You've got out of your way, out of your way to avoid Captain Lou Albano. You've made several statements that before you quit wrestling, you'd like to roll a big seven and have Captain Lou Albano in that ring. Well, let me tell you this, Buddy Rogers, right now before all these fans out here, anytime you want, I accept your challenge. Have you got it, Buddy Rogers? Anytime you want, I accept your challenge. Right here and now, you sleazy, slimy punk, Buddy Rogers, I accept your rape right now. No, no. You don't push me, Buddy Rogers, you've got it. No, no, no. Is that conduct? Ladies and gentlemen. Is that conduct becoming a man who's supposed to represent anything? You bet oh, your life. Did. You, you bet your life I represent what me. I want. Is that conduct? It seems to me as though you've lost your cool. Possibly you have a tag team partner, or maybe you might find some guts to accept Mr. Albano's offer at some time. Oh, I'll definitely have the guts. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say one thing before I go off. I would like to say that when it comes to Lou Albano and Magnificent Morocco, that whether they want me as a single or me as a double, I got Jimmy to back me up. And by golly, no matter where it is, we'll be ready, willing, and able 
and with that, we'll go back to ringside and thank you. You sleazy, slimy punk. Oh, my God. <laughs> Morton Downey Show Part 2. It must have been uh, Bruno must have called Albano before that segment and told him what to call Buddy Rogers. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, talking about, and you have to understand, Steve, I mean, you understand this. They spent a year basically building up Lou Albano versus Buddy Rogers. We want to see this in the ring. And they never really got there. What, do you know what happened with Buddy if he just quit or got hurt or something? I I, I believe uh, he was backstage at the garden, Madison Square Garden, and supposedly he fell in the shower, uh, slipped on something in the shower area. And In fact, I think there was actually going to be a big lawsuit over it. I don't know if he ever got a settlement or whatever, but... Uh, I think that's why Skolan ended up replacing him on those house shows. And then uh, eventually, uh, yeah, and eventually, you know, he kind of got farmed out and they brought in Robert DeBoer to do uh, Victory Corner. And then Piper came in after that. But uh, yeah, I mean, Buddy Rogers uh, teaming with uh, Snuka against Albano and Morocco would have been more uh, visually exciting than to see Skolan team up with uh, uh, Snuka as it did happen. Yeah, we no one wanted to see Arnold Skolan uh, <laughs> teaming up with Jimmy Snuka. It was it was Buddy Rogers that got the build up, yep. and I, I now understand why they had to make that a tag team match and why they just couldn't put Buddy Rogers out there against Lou Albano, even a a hundred percent healthy Buddy Rogers. Oh yeah, and they had they had done like as you mentioned in the past shows, they had done the obligatory uh, Pat Patterson blooding uh, Lou Albano or Jimmy Snuka one one with Lou Albano, and it seemed like Albano would wrestle maybe once every fifteen months and get bludgeoned by somebody and then run off. But uh, yeah, having him in this tag team match uh, with his number one charge Morocco against uh, Snuka and his uh, manager Buddy Rogers would have been a good box office and would have been a good. Uh, bonus attraction on any card i mean it, it sounds crazy 40 years later but we really wanted to see that the wwf fans really wanted to see buddy rogers just pummel captain lou albano and you know they waited and i guess they waited too long i mean you know buddy got hurt and couldn't do it i did look it up and the freebirds did wrestle in the boston garden it just says the fabulous freebirds we don't know which two defeated the moondogs and i missed andre the giant versus roddy piper which would have been really cool <laughs> yeah yeah. But the Springsteen show is great. Well, good for you. Uh, yeah, I, I, actually, I wouldn't want to see Roddy against Andre. That that probably wouldn't have been much fun, really. No, and you know what? We'll, we, we'll talk about this, you know, when 1984 becomes 40 years ago. But, you know, Andre the Giant would go on Piper's pit, and he was the one guy who wouldn't put up with any of Piper's crap. He just, you know, wouldn't fall for his pranks, and then at the end, he'd grab him and jostle him around, you know. So, I mean, it, it had a fun backstory, but it would have been cool to be able to say, you know, hey, I saw Roddy Piper versus Andre the Giant, but, oh, well, I saw Springsteen. <laughs> well, Springsteen, you know, you had yeah, you had the right choice there. <laughs> I, I think so. There were other Boston Garden shows. That was the one time I got to see Bruce. More Buddy Rogers Corner, once again with Captain Lou Albano. These guys can't get enough of each other. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is Captain Lou Albano. But before I interview Albano, I'd like to say in my hand, I've got the first edition of the Victory Magazine sanctioned by the World Wrestling Federation. And on the front cover, 
your man, my man, Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Ladies and gentlemen, there's one guy never ceases to amaze me, and it happens to be the fella sitting alongside of me. He has a write-up in this magazine that totally baffled me. Let me, let me run by some things that's happened in this man's life. His mother is a concert pianist. So what? His mother played seven years on tour in concert with Ignaz Paderewski. So what? His father was an outstanding, I mean an outstanding, Pediatric, was it? Yeah, all right. right. So what? Go ahead. All right. Upon that, he had three brothers and a sister. His three brothers all are educators and administrators of the school system in the state of New York. On top of that, his sister married a very outstanding principal. What happened to Lou? I'm going to get to that, what happened to Lou. Let me tell you this. Another item I found very interesting in this book, that was that he had 32 scholarships to go to college. So what? He finally ended up playing two years of football as a defensive tackle for the University of Tennessee. Well, I would like to say one thing. I am really baffled. I, 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 I can't believe all these things happened to this fellow sitting alongside of me, but I will get to the point where the gentleman in the crowd said, what happened to Lou? Never mind what happened to Lou, but first of all, Buddy Rogers, I do respect you as a two-time former world champion, but I don't respect you as a man. You're a liar. You stole Jimmy Snooker from me, and Buddy Rogers, before I'm through and hang my shoes up, I personally would like to make a challenge. I'd like to get you somewhere in that ring, anywhere in the country, before I hang the shoes up. Have you got it? You're one man. I said I've got respect for you. I know your ability. I know you're a two-time champion, but it won't be wrestling ability. It'll be surprise, surprise. So be ready, Buddy Rogers. Before I don't you worry about what happened. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I might just don't give him that chance. Get your With that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Steve, have you ever been in school and the teacher says to another kid, you know, I I had your brother in my class three years ago. I had your sister in my class six years ago. What happened to you? Why aren't you more like your, your siblings? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that uh, from other people. Absolutely. <laughs> and you, wow, you talk about, you know, just trying to shame down Lou Albano. You know, your brothers do this. Your mom's a pianist. What happened to you? Well, the, well, the thing about Buddy Rogers, he read the whole magazine on the air. No wonder they didn't sell any copies. if if i'm albano i'm like what happened to me i used to manage the world's heavyweight champion i managed 15 sets of tag team champions i don't have to wear a tie and be a principal what do you mean what happened to me (laughs) yeah yeah i'd rather do this than play the piano yeah obviously with albano's body of work he had he had you know garnered uh tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars by that point so uh he had nothing to prove to buddy rogers 
<laughs> exactly. And that's it. That's how I would take it if I were Albano. But then again, I would have ruined the whole show because <laughs> the whole idea was to make Albano look stupid. Right. Uh, I wonder if I can get an, uh, a, a Lou Albano uh, a, a, a Tennessee Volunteers jersey with Albano <laughs> on the back. That would be cool. I got to find out what number he was. The fat cat. <laughs> former, but that's, that's true. He's a former nose tackle at the University of Tennessee. All right, as as if we haven't heard enough from these guys for review purposes, let's hear an interview done by Vince McMahon this time with magnificent Morocco. I got to catch a little wind. Wait, pardon? Worked a little sweat up. You know what I mean? But uh, you're right. It's competition that really turns me on. It's a class of wrestler. It's that type of man. It's somebody who can get down. And now they're all coming. They're coming from everywhere looking for me because I'm the one. I'm the one who made all the monsters. You take Tony Atlas. You take Tito Santana. You take (laughs) Rocky Johnson. And you take Superfly. One by one, all the greatest wrestlers in the world want the belt, the title that I have made, the most prestigious in the world, Intercontinental Championship. Yes, sir. Mr. Morocco, we thank you for your time. It appears as though that indeed there's not much competition in the ring at the moment for you. Rather boring uh, moment for you, I guess, this week. Yeah, it's uh, really nice for me to get out here and talk to you because, you know, I'm kind of winded. I worked up, worked really hard tonight. Morocco giving Vince McMahon a little bit of snark out there. <laughs> well, he, he was uh, definitely in, in the World Wrestling Federation of 1983. Uh, Morocco was the top heel, and uh, he was the man. He was the guy generating the heat, and uh, I think he was really the guy selling a lot of the tickets because people wanted to see him get beat. Oh, absolutely, and we'll talk more about this on next week's show, but I mean, when I came home from Montreal and I missed the weekend of wrestling, and as soon as I got home, I got a phone call saying, you know, Bob Backlund lost the WWF championship, and they said, guess who? And I'm like, the first guess out of my mouth was Morocco, because he was the top guy. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, part part of me part of me wishes he had gotten the belt at some point of his career. I mean, he uh, had such a lengthy career, but uh, never really got any of the three world titles. No, and you know he's done shoot interviews where he said, "I don't, I didn't want it. Yeah, I, I didn't want the NWA ch- championship. I didn't want the WWF title." And a lot of the time, when, when guys say stuff like that, it's like you know, oh, I'm, I'm. I'm 17 years old and I'm too busy to have a girlfriend. No, you're not. You just don't have the opportunity. But Morocco, I actually believe him. That's just, you know, based on everything I've heard about him, he just didn't want to take on the uh, Terry Funk Harley race schedule. Yeah, I think, you know, being uh, being honest, I think he, he may have had a better chance of becoming NWA champ had he had, he had the desire to, because I'm sure Eddie Graham would have... Uh, you know, giving him the push if if they were both kind of of the same mind, and Morocco, you know, had all the ability, but he wanted to have that time off to go home and surf and just chill out. And I, like you say, he he's never had the hunger to be the the head man of the NWA or the WWF. 
Yeah, Steve and I will be discussing this as the months go on as far as Morocco, the end of this run in the WWF. I mean, at at the very end, he looked pretty burned out. And you talk about um, matches in early 1984, you know, Magnificent Morocco against Tito Santana. Wow, that sounds like a really good match. It wasn't, and it felt like Morocco was kind of dragging himself out there sometimes. Yeah, and I've said this on prior shows. I, the the Snuka Morocco uh, feud was so enormous, not only in terms of box office, but I think that uh, both of them, uh, maybe even Morocco more so, took uh, really paid a, a, a huge uh, cost because it really uh, took a lot out of them. I think it was like uh, kind of like uh, Ali Frazier, you know, three major fights and. Uh, uh, the fighters were never the same afterwards. I don't think uh, Maraca and Snuka uh, were ever the same after this huge uh, uh, series of matches that they had that ended in the end of 1983. It's very possible. I mean, Morocco, you know, Snuka had to jump off that cage at least twice, and Morocco had to take that bump at least twice. And, you know, on the Facebook group, Chris Tabar posted that, you know, there's a reason why these guys didn't go around the horn doing that. You can't do that every night. Someone's going to get hurt. And if it only happened twice, there's a reason for it. And it's probably a good reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, they they really had a great formula how everything was set up back then. And uh, when you saw it finally happen uh, on MSG Network uh, or USA Network, uh, the the famous jump off the cage, uh, it really. Um, I mean, I just rewatched it again a few days ago, and it was just really incredibly impressive. And and the way the garden reacted to it, it, it was really uh, kind of like the end of an era uh, when when Morocco got carried out. Out, uh, you really felt like you felt like you were watching the, the changing of the guard, uh, and also knowing that Backlund's days were ending soon. This was kind of like the end of the uh, of that Backlund Morocco era, turning into the Hogan era fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, really, and we'll get more into this next week, but this marked, this was the very end of the of that era. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 1984 was starkly different than 1983, and 1983 wasn't that much different than 82, 81, 80, 79. You know, was, a, a lot was about to change. Well, I mean, one thing I liked about this period we're talking about, uh, Vince was doing so much behind the scenes. He was, uh, you know, finally kind of wielding his power as a guy in charge, even though his father was still there. But one thing that I liked that he did was he was just bringing back guys who had been around uh, maybe two or three years or even less than that. He didn't have to do what they always used to do where, oh, let's bring them on television, start them off slow. He would bring back guys like Greg Valentine and uh, the Iron Sheik and Tito Santana and just put them into these big, uh, you know, high, uh, high quality feuds and, uh, I mean, event matches without all the, well, you got to win like two or three months of job matches on TV. He was just putting these guys right back into the mix. And that was very uh, creative and different compared to what they used to do. Yeah. I mean, 1983, I I liked it, but it wasn't my favorite year mm-hmm. of WWF wrestling during the Backlund era because I felt like a lot of uh, 
they went with a lot of guys who were tried and true. They went with the Samoans mm-hmm. who had been, you know, this was their second run. It felt like they hadn't been gone for too long. George Steele came right back. Morocco came right mm-hmm. back. You know, Mass Superstar was new, but, you know, they, they went with a lot of guys who I felt like a lot of 1983 was reruns, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and Slaughter was part of that, too. He hadn't been gone that long, and he came back. For, yeah, Slaughter, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and you can you can kind of see, I, I think, the beginning of what they had in mind for Slaughter. A lot of these uh, matches from the very end of 83, you know, he's wrestling guys like Putski and uh, wrestled uh, Tito Santana. He's wrestling these guys and uh, Tony Atlas even. And, you know, he's uh, not really like he's definitely not playing heel anymore. He's not like acting like the heel Sergeant Slaughter. He's kind of a more neutral, like a tweener type guy. And I think I think he knows, uh, I guess the promotion probably told him or Vince told him, hey, you know, somewhere shortly down the line, you're going to have a feud with the Iron Sheik. You're going to be a good guy. So rather than have him be a, you know, a villain right to the very end, they just told him to just just kind of chill out, lose some matches, and you know, you're going to get a huge pursuit sometime soon. Yeah, uh, Slaughter was kind of in neutral in the fall of 83. Yeah. The Backland series had come and gone, and they were just kind of keeping him around a little bit for, for what was going to happen next. We talk about changes, Steve. October 8th, 1983, the WWF goes to the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati mm-hmm. for the first time. An arena that World Championship Wrestling or Georgia Championship Wrestling under Ole Anderson had been running for at least two years. And then the next night, uh, the Hara Arena in Dayton, Ohio, October 9th, 1983, the WWF has a show there once again where Georgia Championship Wrestling World Championship Wrestling had already been established yeah we uh, on the show we've talked about uh, their huge uh, entree into the west coast this is another uh, major thing for WWF to go into these new markets like Cincinnati and Dayton and really uh, establish themselves uh, you know they definitely started off fairly slowly uh, even the early Hogan shows I don't think really blew the door off as far as sales, but maybe by the second and third time Hogan was coming back, uh, uh, the crowds had doubled, and eventually you get to the point where every show's a sellout. So Vince really had his uh, ear to the uh, cash register and really knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, they had already been running Pittsburgh since the the beginning of time. If you're running Western Pennsylvania, why not run Ohio? Why not run Cleveland, Dayton, Akron, Cincinnati, etc. Yeah, those those towns had been dormant or uh, had been, uh, like you say, Georgia had been running some shows there, and they weren't uh, they weren't you know selling out and, and going gangbusters there either. I mean, both they they were doing well. Okay. They were doing well in, in Ohio and Michigan. They were doing better than they were in Atlanta, which you know they weren't doing great in Atlanta anymore. But still, well, I, I guess it was probably just a, a, a combination of uh, they hadn't had wrestling in those markets for quite some time. Maybe going back to the Johnny Powers uh, NWF days or uh, or uh, Farhat's promotion if they had gone into those markets too. So it was about time for yeah. some wrestling. No, I, I agree 100%. And I've said this before. It's weird looking back that there were, I mean, major cities like Phoenix, Salt Lake City, uh, Los Angeles that didn't have major league wrestling for a long time. And there was a void. And, you know, the, the smart promoters, you know, go out there and they they 
answer they 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 put in the supply where the demand exists. Uh, now let's hear some more audio once again for review purposes only. This is Bob Backlund after the mass superstar does a number on Eddie Gilbert. Let's hear from that. Here we are in the dressing room area with Bob Backlund and Bob. This got to be the toughest match you ever have in your wrestling career, and I'm sure that superstar was trying to do to you what he did to Eddie Gilbert. And I'm sure you must be really hurt, Bob. You know, I can't figure this man out. He had me. He was going for the most cherished thing in professional wrestling. And he, I think he had me. I think he had me. Well, at one I point... he had me... I don't like to even say it. I don't like to even think about that. But this man, he's so destructive and so into pain. It seemed like he didn't even, he didn't even try. All he tried to do was injure me. And all I could think of was... <laughs> Without a doubt, Bob, this man that was man, to you. Uh, hey, oh, boy. I know what this man is like now. This man is out for terror. He's out for blood and guts. He don't care about championships. He don't care about friends. He don't have respect for championships. And by golly... You can't treat this man with any kind of respect, anything at all. He's not going to do it. I'm going to figure out something. I've got to be a smarter wrestler than a man that could do something like that. There's some way in God's given earth that I'm going to reach way down inside. Deep, deep, deep. And it's going to take something to beat this man. Well, Bob Backlund, you find out what, what sort of a man's superstar was. With this, let's go back to Gorilla Monsoon. Deep, <laughs> deep, deep. Bob, you're not in a porn. <laughs> was, it, was it Bob Von Erich there that we just heard? <laughs> I, I apologize to everyone. I, I put this compilation of audio together like six, seven days ago, and it was Bob Backlund after his Madison Square Garden match on October 17th, 1983 against the Masked Superstar. I, someday, to make up for all this, will put together a show where I have all of Bob Backlund's good interviews from like 1978, 1981, etc. The, the guy's completely lost it. That's awful. <laughs> well, I, I will say, um, watching that historic card, which was the same card that uh, uh, Snuka jumped on Morocco from the top of the cage, uh, one thing that they did on that show that I really was impressed with in retrospect, they had quite a few different interviews, uh, that one that you just played. Uh, they actually had a, a really cool interview uh, after the cage match with um, Larry O'Day, this famous uh, Australian wrestler, and he was just talking about uh, being a wrestler from Australia, seeing this match at the Garden with Morocco and Snuka, and he was really being sincere and saying, like, this is this is like nothing I've ever seen. I've been all over the world. I've been in all these different countries. This is like nothing I've seen anywhere else. And he was putting it over so big and in so and in such a believable way. Uh, it was kind of like something like the anti-WWF where they were actually acknowledging that there was wrestling in other areas and other parts of the world. And here's somebody from another territory, another part of the world putting them over. And I found that very refreshing and very interesting. 
We would have had that audio, except me, I, I have that WWF show on two different DVDs, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that I just put in the second part. I'm like, wow, I only have half this show. And then a couple of days later, I'm like, oh, I have the whole show. It's just on two DVDs. So that's me cheating everyone out of the Larry O'Day interview. <laughs> well, there's, there were some other good ones, too. They had one with uh, Vince interviewing Andre. They had one with uh, Patterson actually interviewing Lou Albana. It was quite humorous. And- and uh, it was just it was just um, very interesting to see how on, not only on this card of great wrestling they had gave you a ton of interviews and it really gave you the flavor of the early '80s wrestling and it was really quite entertaining. I'll tell you what, since we're talking about it, let's go to Madison Square Garden, October 17th, 1983. Jimmy Snuka's interview right before his cage match against the Magnificent Morocco. With us now, ladies and gentlemen. Superfly Jimmy Snooker, who's just about ready to walk out into the arena. Ready to walk into the arena and hear 20 some odd thousand people scream at the top of their lungs. Another 5,000 over in the Felt Forum. Millions on television to see Jimmy the culmination of what has developed, no doubt, to be perhaps the most bitter feud in pro wrestling. You and the magnificent Morocco to be contested in the most grueling type match there is, the steel cage match, your comments as you contemplate this match tonight. You know, Vinny, there's one thing I just like to tell the people, and I know they have heard me before, over and over again. But Vinny, there's only one reason that why it has come to this kind of conclusion. Don Morocco, you know it, and I know it. The only reason why we're in this situation, brother, in the steel cage, is because you know what you did. Started off from Lou Albano, and it started back from past, brother. And it comes on and on, and now it's up to you. I'll never forget, brother. Nobody forgets deep down inside when somebody does something wrong to him. Because nobody likes to do no wrong. Everybody likes to be right. But Don Morocco in the steel cage tonight, brother. Just remember, tonight. Yes, I'm sitting right here in the locker room before this cage match, my man. And believe me, anything can happen. And the steel cage can have a broken neck, broken wrist, leg, your ribs. You name it, my man. The steel cage is for one thing, is for true animals that's gonna go in there and prove the point of you, my man. Do you understand that, Don Morocco? This is why this situation has come up to this point. And believe me, Don is God's truth, my man, I'm gonna give all I got out there. Believe me, brother, because this is gonna be the proven, the testament that's from down inside this man's heart. Do you understand that? That's right, Don Morocco, and I ain't taking it upon you because it's not you, it's you, Don Morocco. You, you. Do you understand? Yes, my man. You got me so psyched up. Yes, you have brought the animal and the charisma out of me. So help me, God, brother. Yeah, brother, you better shake that microphone because if you don't, there's gonna be something else gonna be shaking in the ring tonight. And believe me, it's the gate of all of 
all, brother. Hell of all hell. Thank you very much. Jimmy Snooker, best of luck. Steve, have you ever seen a movie from 1985? It was called Better Off Dead. Yes, I am familiar with that, yes. Vince McMahon is exactly like the guy who learned how to speak English strictly from listening to Howard Cosell. (laughs) He is dying to be Howard Cosell out there. (laughs) He he was really good in that role, but uh, I I think this is a decent transition uh, to uh, the question that Thomas Bain posted. Jimmy Snuka gets arrested and convicted for murder. Does that slow or stop Vince's expansion? I would say it would slow it. I think Vince was doing what he was going to do no matter what. And if Snuka, I I think Vince probably could have successfully distanced himself from Jimmy Snuka. Um, And plus, in 1983, it was really, it was different than it is today. Like, you know, if you're in any way associated with someone who does something wrong, it's kind of your fault in a way because you're associated. Back then, it really wasn't like that as much. You're absolutely right i i think uh in that time frame like uh, entertainment tonight had only been on the air for one year and it was a really different program a very g-rated program back then those shows like a current affair and uh, inside edition and all those those were still like five six years away and we hadn't even had fox news and all this other stuff so uh it was a, it was a really kinder gentler time and and I'm, like you say i think vince would have smoothed it over and we wouldn't even have known about it in the mainstream media so I think it would have gotten covered in the mainstream media. I think it would have made the papers because Snooker was a a big enough name. But I think I think McMahon could have just divorced himself from Jimmy Snooker. It would have been like. Uh in a way, like the way the New England Patriots divorced themselves from uh, Aaron Hernandez. Right. It's just like, okay, well, this guy went off the rails. It's not the Patriots' fault. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of like what WWF did with Benoit all those years later. Exactly. And who can, you know, who can really blame the WWF for Benoit, even though in a way you kind of say, well, you employed him and you mm-hmm. have this kind of dirty business where, you know, he gets concussed and mm-hmm. guys have drug problems, etc. But let's let's focus on cheerier things. Let's <laughs> let's uh, hear from Buddy Rogers in Madison Square Garden for review purposes, of course. Buddy Rogers, former World Wrestling Federation champion, indeed a superstar. Now a superstar of a different sort. The manager of one of the most extraordinary wrestlers in professional wrestling today, Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And you are sending Snuka into what is, without a doubt, the most grueling match in professional wrestling today against, without a doubt, one of the most gifted and talented athletes whom Snuka will ever face in the magnificent Morocco. A comment from you, Buddy Rogers, considering just what this match means in the way of importance. Well, it's naturally the most important match I can think of right at this time for the mere reason. Not taking anything away from Morocco, without a doubt, he is, I'd say, one of the greatest wrestlers of modern times, without a doubt, and has been a super champion. But I do feel that when it comes to Jimmy, deep down inside, Vince, I know, I know Jimmy can beat Morocco. I think he's proven it time and again. I think he's been in positions where he's proven himself. And it's just to the point now, it's do or die. So I told Jimmy, I said, Jim, I said, you got to get in that cage. You, you, you just have to corner this guy. He can't run. He can't hide. 
famous words of a great fighter, Joe Lewis, but believe me, I know Jimmy Snuka, and I hope you people out there understand the way I feel. I know he can beat Morocco, and this type of match is a match I, I, that I feel he can get the job done. All right, just as simple as that, Buddy Rogers, we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Former World Wrestling Federation champion and the manager of Superfly Snooker, Buddy Rogers. Now, you see, I thought that was a really good interview. It wasn't uh, a Roddy Piper, Ric Flair classic, but it was Buddy Rogers being serious and treating it like, you know, hey, a fight's about to go down, a real fight. Oh, yeah. It's so, so far removed from what you see today. I mean, there was actually, it was actually compelling listening to it. You really felt uh, there was a connection between Rogers and Snuka and uh, a real relationship there. Um, and I, I just want to mention this also. Another little car- match on this particular card was Mike Graham against uh, Bob Bradley. And while Mike Graham had wrestled at MSG about five years earlier, he went, wins this match. And then Pat Patterson interviewed him backstage at the Garden. And it was just so cool because, again, here's kind of like one of those very last moments where they're using a guy from outside the territory to make a special guest appearance at the Garden. And they even throw him this little interview and he talks about, you know, how great wrestling is and his place in wrestling. And, you know, this is going to all go away. I mean, J.J. Dillon, I think, was the last one that made an appearance like that a few months later from now, maybe February, I think. And I think April. April and, and, and that's it. I think. I'm guessing. And that's it. I mean, there's no more of these special guest appearances. Uh, and you almost wonder, like, what, what was Eddie Graham thinking? You know, was, uh, were, were they aware that uh, the whole wrestling world was just going to be changing within a few months? My understanding is that by the time Vince McMahon, you know, by the time he went national mm-hmm. and it was obvious that he was declaring war on every promotion out there, mm-hmm. it was too late. Like, um, Eddie Graham would call Vince McMahon Sr. and say, hey, what's going on? And he'd be like, oh, no, Vince, Vince Jr., he's not going to bother you. He just, you know, he wants to go to California. He wants the Midwest. But that's it. Don't worry about it. And, you know, next thing, Vince is promoting in Miami. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I... I um I kind of wondered, and maybe I mentioned this on a prior show, I'm not sure, but I kind of wonder if, um, you know, with Eddie Graham's uh, very unfortunate passing in uh, 85, and people mentioned a whole myriad of reasons, you know, why did he commit suicide? Uh, uh, I don't think this is one of the top reasons, but I'm sure that losing Vince McMahon, the elder Vince McMahon who passed away in mid-84, uh, the guy that he would talk on the phone with daily about the business, the state of the business, what's going on. Hey, let's do this move together. Let me trade talent with you. Uh, the fact that that relationship was gone out of his life, I, I'm sure that I'm not saying it pushed him to do commit suicide, but I'm sure it was just a, another drop in the bucket as far as uh, you making him depressed, making him sad, and realizing that the wrestling world that he knew is certainly gone. Well, that and the fact that, you know, his good friend, Vince Sr.'s son, is putting him out of business. It's taking his livelihood away from him. Like, this is what his friend's kid is doing to him. And I understand why Vince did what he did. I will never blame Vince McMahon for doing what he did. I didn't like it at the time. 
but I, I certainly understood it then, and I understand it now, and if Vince Jr. didn't do it, someone was going to do it. It's that simple. The the territorial days, you know what? They, they might not have been gone in 1984. They could have easily been gone in 1980 or 1981. I mean, I've mentioned this on the show. Terry Funk came home in 1979, came home all after a tour to his home in Amarillo and he turns on uh, cable and he sees the Georgia Championship Wrestling is now on in Amarillo and he immediately sold the territory. He knew what was coming. Yeah, yeah. the, the territory days were going to be completely over with. Uh, you know, and it, it's kind of, I think it's kind of interesting to speculate. You know, uh, we've heard the stories, the legendary stories of, uh, you know, Vince going down to Georgia and taking over the Black Saturday stuff and, and in the report reportedly he offered only a job a lifetime job um you know it would be interesting to think of you know if things hadn't been or had been slightly different wouldn't it have been interesting if uh, maybe eddie graham got a lifetime job or or, or or some kind of a way for him to participate in backstage at wwf be a booker be a creative guy on, on the scene but that wasn't meant to be I, mean, I guess maybe eddie graham's other problems away from wrestling uh, probably prevented that from happening that is a possibility i mean vince actually partnered up with Stu Hart uh, of course you know when the partnership didn't work for McMahon he just took it all right back <laughs> but maybe he could have done something like that with Eddie Graham I, I don't know but I mean Steve there's an alternative universe where you and I 40 years after the fact was like you know man I miss the WWF I miss the Bob Backlund era and it all changed when that crazy world championship wrestling got on cable and they started having shows in New York and Boston and they took over the syndicate TV, poor Vince McMahon Jr. <laughs> That's right. That could have been. That could have been. It could have been. Yeah, I mean, I mean, World Championship Wrestling, Georgia Championship Wrestling, they had the head start with the National Cable Show. And I know the WWF had WOR. Yeah, it's on at midnight. Right. Okay. That's right. This is, you know, 6.05 every Saturday. You've got this big wrestling show. And. I mean, looking back, you know, 42, 43 years ago, they should have started making their moves. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I think we know the big reason why it didn't happen. I mean, Vince was in the, uh, you know, the media capital of the world, and he had those resources, knew who to call upon. He had uh, definitely the number one guy in the wrestling business as far as connections with Jim Barnett to walk him through what to do if he didn't know already. Uh, but, but those guys um, running Georgia championship wrestling, they may have wanted to expand and, and get huge, but they just didn't know how to do that. How do, how do we get huge? They really didn't know how to do that. No. And you know what? Um, I mean, a lot of people say, well, Vince had New York. Let me say this. If Vince, had Georgia Championship Wrestling and only had the WWF, Vince would have won. If Vince had the AWA and Vern Gagne was in New York with the WWF, Vince would have won. I am completely convinced of that. I'll tell you what, we're we're running low on time. It's always the fastest hour of my week. But let's hear a pre-match interview from the, the magnificent Morocco before he gets in the cage with Jimmy Snuka at Madison Square Garden. For review purposes, ha <laughs> With us, ladies and gentlemen, the reigning intercontinental champion, the magnificent Morocco, who has indeed reigned for some time as intercontinental champion, and has no doubt raised the ire of many an opponent. And tonight, Mr. Morocco, you walk to the ring to face 
the hungry cage in a match that corners you and Snooker, as was said before, with no place to run, no place to hide. Inside the steel cage, Mr. Morocco, this I'm sure you will grant, is the most grueling match in professional wrestling today. So what do you want me to do? You want me to get excited? You want me to cheer? You want me to get all oh, everybody all riled up? It's all been done. It's all been said. I've already did it all. I got him here. I got Snooker riled up. I got the people riled up. Everything's coming down. All the preparation's ready. I've been training for months. I'm not a champion, just a day champion. I live as a champion. I eat as a champion. I breathe as a champion. So now we're just talking about preliminaries. We're talking about stretching my legs, stretching my arms, getting a little sweat so I don't pull anything before I first walk into the cage. Because it is a cage, isn't it? And you know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. Nobody knows what it's like. Nobody but me to go out there and stand in front of 22,000 people and feel the hate, feel everything come down right on top of me. I'm supposed to worry about a cage. I'm supposed to worry about my skin getting torn. I'm supposed to get my, my face getting torn, about, about, about getting hurt. When I got 22,000 people spitting on me, when this is what I set out for to begin with, to have only the finest come after me. Superfly is the finest. But just like everybody else, he hasn't been the smartest, has he? And as of yet, because I still have this, he hasn't been the best. Because I am the best. And we've got minutes or hours or however long the time goes, however long it is now until we set foot in that cage. Good luck, Snooker. Good luck, brother. You're going to need all you got. You better be warmed up. You better be loose. You better be thinking about it. I've done my thinking. We're on the eve. This is our playground right outside here, right outside these doors. You walk out these doors, and you're in the heart of the Big Apple. The whole world revolves. And right now it's revolving around us, Snuka, in a cage. Thank you very much for your time. The Magnificent Morocco. No wonder why everyone loved Morocco so much. And the audio was not only fantastic, the video, which we obviously we don't have. I mean, he's just sitting there smirking into the camera, going on the way he was going on. I mean, what a superstar Morocco was. I would say, arguably, that would be maybe the greatest interview he ever did. I mean, um, it was before his biggest match. And I think part of that, I'm um, judging part of that, comes from the fact that uh, five days earlier, the death of Ernie Roth, his one-time manager, uh, Ernie Roth, uh, the Grand Wizard, was also the uh, godfather of one of Morocco's kids. And um, I did not know oh, that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Morocco was such an incredible interview, such an incredible performer. And I think he had truly appreciated Ernie Roth uh, and appreciated Albano, obviously. I think that he took... Uh, all of the greatness, uh, some of Blassie's greatness too, and uh, really delivered the goods for the McMahons. And really, um, this night at the Garden was really a standout evening as he put over Snuka, even though he, he won the match technically, but he put Snuka over by letting him leap on him from the top of the cage. You know what? The first thing we're going to talk about next week is the death of Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Uh, we're running low on time this week, but um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna kick off with that next week and just you know what it meant and uh, not just to us personally, but to the World Wrestling Federation. But with that, I'll tell you what. Let's go to Lou Albano at Madison Square Garden, October seventeenth, nineteen eighty three. 
after the cage match. Here next to me is the manager of Magnificent Morocco, Captain Louis Albano. Now, Mr. Albano, you just came out of the dressing room and you were with Mr. Mr. Morocco, and we would like to get your opinion and get your feeling about his conditions. Well, first of all, Mr. Pat Patterson, let me tell you this. The magnificent Morocco has been hurt. He has been maimed. He has been weakened, but the man has still survived. Any man that can go into that ring and have a Jimmy Snooker, a man that weighs some 236 pounds, go up onto a 20-foot height level and come down upon your body and pounce, it's got to be the most devastating move in wrestling history. I believe that, that the magnificent Morocco has got to go down in the annals of wrestling history as an idol, as a man that has of all time survived the most dangerous move in wrestling history. I'm so proud and I feel so good and I feel so fine to go in the back and to just see that my man is still capable. Yes, he's breathing heavy. Yes, he's had some lung pressure put on him. Yes, we've called for a resuscitator, but I've been assured by the authorities, by the doctors, by the commission, that the Magnificent Morocco will be fine. He survived, he still has the championship belt. Well, Mr. Albano, I must say one thing, and all the fans at Madison Square Garden will agree with me, that Mr. Morocco is lucky, and I mean very lucky, to still be the Intercontinental Champion, because the way he won that match, it was truly with luck. Superfly Snooker came off the rope with a flying headbutt and Morocco went through the ropes as he went through the ropes the door opened and out he went onto the concrete floor the and because of that he remains the champion the main thing Mr. Pat Patterson and I use the word Mr. Lightly is the first man out of the ring is the winner of that match and it remains that my man the magnificent Morocco came out of the ring and won the match you call it a headbutt that carried him out. I call it wrestling knowledge and wrestling ability and wrestling wisdom. I say that my man was smart enough to in the back of his mind with an IQ of 109.27 to sit back, to meditate, to think and to plan to be out of that ring at the proper time to be there when it's right. So whatever you can stand here, you're a liar, liar on the wall. You're the biggest liar of them all. You can say anything you want, Pat Patterson, but I say my man was out first, he won the match, he is thoroughly prepared, he is wounded, he is maimed, but he is ready, he is ready at all times, any time a man can go up onto that mat, some 22 feet, and pounce upon your body, it's got the maim, it's got the hurt, it's got the cripple, but that magnificent one has survived it all, he... <laughs> He is so good, he's so fine, he is so well-tuned that he is ready. Well, we heard a comment from the manager of Magnificent Morocco, and with this, we'll go back to ringside Don't to Gorilla to Monsoon. Let me stay and talk about the Magnificent One. What a fountain of misinformation, Captain Louis Albano. Where do I begin? <laughs> I'm glad the authorities and the commission uh, assured Lou Albano that uh, Magnificent Morocco was okay. Steve, I'm asking this non-rhetorically. Is an IQ of 109.27, that's not that great, is it? No, I think it's genius ca category, perhaps. No, I don't know about that, but... I, 
I think like 140 is like you're really smart. That, that's right. I think. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I think I think he, he did underestimate. I think he has. Uh, that's definitely not even normal level. But uh, I will say this: that uh, Lou Albano, uh, definitely a Lou Albano, is completely missing in today's wrestling of uh, 2023. There's no one in wrestling today that is completely unhinged. And, and you can actually believe that he's unhinged. I mean, they, they have characters that try to act like they're goofy or weird, but you can just tell that they're they're acting poorly, like uh, you know somebody at a dinner theater, but poor dinner theater. But Lou Albano, you really watched him, and you thought, God, this guy is unhinged. The best part about Lou Albano, okay, isn't that he was unhinged. It's that he could be unhinged. He would do interviews where he would be completely normal right. and everything would be fine. Right. And then you'd have that interview just like this one where the guy is off the wall. And that's where it becomes believable because he's not off the wall all the time. But this interview, and it was a great interview, he was off the wall. And notice he got stuck at the very beginning. He just goes, ah, he keeps going. I was like, he just got through it like a tank. And that's what you have to do. You can't just say, oh, yeah, I got stuck. Sorry. She's like, no, Tank, buddy, go. I was, I was surprised that Pat Patterson kept a straight face during some of that stuff because, you know, it just seemed like Patterson was in another world. I don't know if he, what, what his condition was, but uh, he didn't crack up at least. No, I, I, by this point, Patterson had been around Albano since 1979. <laughs> I'm sure. Five five years into it, he's unfazed. <laughs> Final interview of the show. Let's go to Andre the Giant before his match at Madison Square Garden, October 17th, 1983, for review purposes. With us now, ladies and gentlemen, the most extraordinary athlete of all time, Andre the Giant. Andre will be greeted by some 22,000 people out in the main arena tonight in Madison Square Garden, some 5,000 over in the Felt Forum, sold out for over a week. You, one of the chief reasons why, Andre the Giant, people standing in line, buying tickets, wanting to get close to the one and the only Andre. It's got to be a tremendous feeling for you, Andre. I really appreciate it when you say Andre the Giant, because John saw it climb, he was the giant. And after I get through with him, now I really, I am Andre the Giant. He claimed himself he was John Stud the Giant. But this time now I got my hands full with the Samoans. I know they want to give me some trouble. But tonight I got only one. And I don't want to disappoint the people. And I'm going to try to do my best again. But. I, have, I know I have to watch my back because maybe one or the someone number two or someone number three or maybe Mr. Lou Albano will jump in the ring. We never know. But tonight again, I want to show the people I'm still Andre the Giant. Andre, thank you much for joining us. Andre the Giant, the single greatest sports attraction in the history of sports today. Andre the Giant, thank you. I'm going to tell you what I liked about that interview. Mm -hmm. What has been missing from from wrestling for probably since this night almost <laughs> is that you, it, wrestling no longer has a straight man. And that's what Andre was. He was the straight man. Albano was the crazy out there guy. 
Andre was the straight man. Backlund used to be the great straight man, I thought, in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. He's come out there and did what Bruno did, just you know, just like Andre just did. Well, you know, I know the Samoans are tough, and I'm going to be out there for the people. I'm going to do my best, da, da, da. And that, that's what makes the crazy guys like Albano really stand out. And I, I believe that's become a lost art. Oh, you you were very well said. And uh, and and I, I have to brag a little bit. Uh, I have this huge TV setting. It's like 47 inches or 67. I don't know how many inches, but but Andre's head was about 30 inches, and, and Vince's <laughs> head was about 11. So, I mean, Andre was just so huge. It was just incredible watching him. He really was. You know what? We're we're running out of time. We're going to be back doing the second part of the WWF, the fall of 1983, a week from now. Steve, thank you for coming on and joining well, us. It was great uh, going back in time with uh, you, John, on these. Uh, it's like we're back in um, like uh, college days. Uh, <laughs> it's been so long. Early call, or earliest college days for me, and uh, yeah, and and you know, one thing about Steve and I, we lived through this era. I mean, we we ate it up. We watched it every Saturday morning. Uh, I went to every Boston Garden show I could, which I think I went. I went to all of them except for one in 1983, and the one I didn't go. We got like 20 inches of snow, and the trains were shut down. There was just no way I could go. But uh, I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. Thank you, Brian. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does. I can't say enough good things about Lou. And I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat the Aggies. Do we have a for review purposes segment this week? Yes, we do. I want to bring on a guy. I, I've known him on the internet for quite some time. He's a cool dude. Pete Pingle. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to do it. I love the podcast. Listen to it every Friday. Brings back so many great memories. Hey, guys like you keep me going. Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself as a wrestling fan. Uh, I started uh, watching the uh, old WWWF actually during the Bruno San Martino days. Uh, I started watching it over at my grandfather's. My mom and dad used to take take me over there while they played cards and of course i didn't want to play cards so one day i turned on the tv and there was bruno sammartino and ken patera oh wow so this is like 76 77 yeah i was hooked ever since excellent that's that's right around the same time i started watching so you checked out the podcast what'd you think oh it's fantastic uh the memories of uh, morocco and snooka and uh backland and the mass superstar I got to see all of that over at the uh, Pittsburgh Civic Arena. Oh, nice. Okay. So what questions did you have for me? I uh, love Pittsburgh, by my, the way. I, everyone who listens to the podcast knows I like love Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's uh, that was actually the closest big city for me to go see any of the wrestling matches. Where I grew up, they didn't have anything close. So I would make the two-hour John over there once a month to see the card. Oh, wow. That makes me grateful that my parents moved us to Nashua, New Hampshire, which is right on the mass border instead of uh, Bangor, Maine. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the questions I have for you, John, um, during that podcast in uh, 83, who do you feel was the bigger star? For me, it was still Bob Backlund because he was the champion. And to me, the champion should be the main focus. But I know Snuka was really you know, coming on strong. 
who do you he, feel was carrying the promotion during that time? I, I carrying the promotion was definitely Bob Backlund. You know, I read Mick Foley's first book. Oh man, that's almost 25 years ago. And he yeah. said something like, you know, the October 17th, 83 show, we all know what the main event was. It was Morocco and Snuka. And I was like, right. no Mick, the main event was Bob Backlund against the mass superstar. That is the championship match. And that's always the main event. And Snuka, was as strong a number two as I had ever seen. Uh, we're talking, you know, uh, middle of uh, Bruno's last reign and then into Backlund's reign. And no one was ever even close. I mean, Morales wasn't close. Putski wasn't close. But Bob Backlund was still number one. Yeah, he, he was to me, too. And I know every time I went over to uh, Pittsburgh and saw the matches, that the loudest pop was still always for Bob Backlund. I know the magazines... We're really pushing Snuka. He was on the covers. But live being there, nobody got the reaction Backlund got. Now, uh, that's interesting. Now, th that continued until Backlund in Pittsburgh. That continued in until Backlund lost the title. Yeah, yeah. You see, in Boston... And I, you know, by watching uh, videotapes and DVDs in Philadelphia, I noticed the fans were really starting to turn on Backlund, especially in Boston. And maybe it's just a, a Boston thing. We're a bunch of jerks up here, but it, it, it definitely <laughs> the tide was beginning to turn. Snuka got a lot of cheers uh, during his 82 matches against Bob Backlund, which I had never seen a heel get cheered like that before. Now, in Pittsburgh, when he was going against uh, Morocco, um, Morocco had a lot of fans there also. I, I, um, Snuka got, obviously, a huge, huge pop, but Morocco was just as over. Really? Yeah. Be because yeah. Snuka, no one, uh, until like the middle, maybe the end of 1984, like, you know, no one was cheering for anybody but Jimmy Snuka. In, in Boston. So it's it's funny that, you know, Boston and Pittsburgh, you know, different guys got different reactions. Yeah. Now, the month before the big Morocco blow off, um, Jimmy went up against um, Albino. It might have been a couple months before, but it was right around that time. And obviously, Snuka was way over. You know, everybody wanted to see him hit the splash on Albino. But I was stunned that Morocco got the applause he got. Yeah, I mean, Morocco was always popular for a heel, and that's a very yeah. big qualifier because, you know, every every show in Boston, you know, before Snooker came in, every show I've seen on video from Philly and New York, you know, rarely did the heels get any cheers. I remember Morocco was on TV once in 81, and you could hear like a small smattering of girls screaming for him. It must've been like three girls. I don't know, but you could hear it on TV. <laughs> and I was like, wow, a bad guy's getting cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question I wanted to ask you, what did you think of, uh, Andre's popularity at the time? Do you feel he was still as popular as before, or was he starting to fade a little bit? I think he was starting to fade a little bit. He was still very strong. Don't get me wrong, but Andre, once you've seen him in Boston, you know, how many times 
And it's kind mm-hmm. of the same match over and over again. You know, it, the, the the uniqueness of it wears out. Now, Andre, if he came to a, you know, a smaller city or a small town, you know, forget about it. Everyone came out to see him. I remember when I lived in North Attleboro, Mass, and Andre came to Jack Witchie Sports Arena. I read about it the next week, and it's, you know, a rare sellout for Jack Witchie's because Andre was there. But by this point, like I said, you know, Andre, you know, we'd seen him before and his feuds against Mulligan and stud people got excited about, but if he, it was just some random match out there against the heel who was on his way out. It it didn't get that big a pop. Yeah. He, uh, when I saw him over in Pittsburgh, um, he was mega over in his, in his feud with killer con. Yes. And then also with black Jack Mulligan, but it seemed like the stud feud kind of, at least where I got to see it live wasn't as over as the other, as his previous feuds. It, it, for me, my recollection in Boston is for whatever reason, no one liked big John stud and everyone was right. happy when Andre <laughs> finally came out and defeated the other giant. I thought stud was both boring and, and actually good at his job because he was very condescending and insulting towards Andre calling himself the real giant and, you know, doing the body slam challenge. I thought, I thought he was booked really well. Yeah. 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 I thought he was too, but for whatever reason, it just didn't seem like he got over. Um, like I thought he would when he first came in. Now, let me ask you this. One thing that I thought was curious about the booking, and they did this in every city I'm aware of. First, they did Big John Studd against Bob Backlund. And in Boston, Backlund got a pretty clean pin over Big John Studd. Same thing in New York, same thing in Philly. And you kind of, if you're the average fan, you're like, okay, well, if Bob Backlund can beat this guy in one match, they didn't do like a two or three match series. How's he going to beat Andre? Right, and and I thought that too because the the match, the couple of matches I saw on YouTube, um, Bob got a clean pin. You know, he he got put up in the uh, body breaker, back breaker, kicked off the ropes, rolled over, and pinned him clean. Yeah, and most most challengers, there was some excuse every single month. The guy's foot was on the ropes, the ref counted really fast, whatever you've got, and Stud got pinned clean. So that that might have hurt him a little bit. Yeah, I think in the long run, it, it definitely did. Because like you said, John, if he couldn't beat Backlund, who was half his size, even though he was Bob Backlund, what's he going to do against the Giant? Right. We've seen Backlund lose before, albeit by, you know, the ref stopped it for blood. Uh, there's a count out, you know, whatever you've got. We've seen him lose. We have never seen Andre lose, you know, even on a technicality. So how is how stud going to beat Andre the Giant? Pete, I, every week I say the hour goes by really fast. This 10 yeah. minutes has flown by. But I want to thank you for coming on. You did a really good job. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It was an honor. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It meant a lot to me. Thank you. This concludes our podcast day.